I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Uh, it's September, y'all. Or it will be by the time you're listening to this. Yeah, September 1st. Unless you're a patron, it's still August, but shh. It's fine. Don't tell anyone. Don't worry about it. But yeah, so that means we have left ancient serial killers behind. And <laughs> we're creeping ever closer to the most wonderful time of year, as as Kat has Halloween, put it. Halloween, <laughs> clearly. Well, you can you can claim it's Christmas, but it's Halloween. I don't know. Like, I like March. That's my birthday. That's the most wonderful time of year. No, but I just I am like a basic bitch who just loves autumn. And I also love spooky shit, so I have bought, I showed you, I bought my Uggs ready for winter. Yes, yes, yes. Bought some new ones. They're not real, obviously. They're uh, cheap knockoffs, but clearly that's just the kind of girl I am. No, there is a a charm to autumn, and I I will welcome sort of a change in the seasons. That's Less humidity. God, yes, please. My hair can't handle it. Your hair is an inch long. No, it's not. Mine is past my tits. It's like two inches long. But yeah, anyway, back to the point. Uh, Halloween. Halloween. It's coming. You know, you guys know we do a bunch of a bunch of stuff, extra stuff in the Halloween season. So you got that to look forward to next month. Uh, but for now to get us in the mood for sort of spooky season Uh, for the month of September. We have a series of unsolved cases to send you all down dark and twisty true crime rabbit holes. And uh, today we're starting with a case from 1920s Germany filled with mystery, intrigue, and incest which is not great but yeah it does add to the mystery and the intrigue yes yeah so you know and you can't just have two things it 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 always has to be a three thing list right rule of three rule of three so so we're gonna do it we're gonna go there so let's get into it the now-demolished Hinterkaifeck was a small farm in rural Bavaria, which was about 40 miles north of the city of Munich, as the crow flies. Very confused when Google Maps brought up that it was 100 miles away. I was like, <laughs> huh? well, your little, your little scaly thing at the bottom that says, you know, five miles is this distance is wrong. Then I realized, no, that's by the roads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the farm was located between Ingolstadt and Schrovenhausen, and the name translates to Behind Kaifek. So Kaifek no longer exists. It was a small village, I believe, but is now part of a modern town called Vedhofen. Uh, the farm was built in 1863, and in 1922, the Gruber family lived there. That was the family patriarch, Andreas Gruber, who was 63, his wife, Kazilia, or which okay might be pronounced Cecilia. I got two pronunciations for that one. <laughs> so I got Casilia, which is how it's spelled. Yeah. And also Cecilia, which might just be the English translation. Yes. So, so. either way, she was seventy two. <laughs> nine years older than her husband. You get it, girl? Yeah. Uh their daughter, Victoria Gabriel. Uh, who's 35 and she'd been widowed during the first world war and she also lived there with her children uh Cazilia or Cazilia uh, who was seven and her son Joseph who was two uh, the family's maid Maria Baumgartner also lived there on March 31st 1922 all six of the residents were murdered in what has become known as one of Germany's most famous or infamous <laughs> unsolved crimes. Uh, the family were known for being quite private, introverted, generally kind of keeping to themselves. But even before the murders took place, Hinterkaifeck and the Grubers were well known in the local area. Oh boy. 
So strange things began to happen on the family farm about six months before the murders in uh, autumn of 1921. Almost said 1912 there. Oh, That's boy. a long six months. Yeah, really long six months. The family's previous maid, Crescens Rieger, had suddenly quit her job, and it has widely been reported that she left because she heard noises coming from the attic at night and became convinced that either the farmhouse was haunted or that someone was creeping around the house under the cover of darkness. Either way, not somewhere you want to be if you don't have to be. No. Nope. I would have quit, too. Good on you, lady. Uh, the farm backed onto woods separating them from the town, and like in all good horror movies set out in the country, over winter the family began to suspect that someone was watching them from the tree line. Good. Right. I have thoughts on this, right? You know how, like, in like all these kind of films that are set out in rural areas, it's always like a cabin in the woods. Mm -hmm. I know obviously crimes do happen in rural areas. I'm not saying they don't. I've lived in the country for most of my life. I've never felt unsafe. Nope. Even when I've been like house sitting for like family members who live literally out in the wilds, yep. like out in the moors, nobody for miles around, and I've never felt unsafe. And I've never felt watched. Or anything like that. Yeah. And I always just find it weird that all these these films sort of present the countryside as, you know, there's always been somebody lurking and there's always been danger. And I'm like, I've just never felt like that. No, I agree. Because, like, so our house in Vermont is literally the last house on the left of a <laughs> dirt road. And the road ends after our driveway. Basically, it becomes impassable. And like middle of nowhere the closest town is like at least a 20 minute drive away and even that is like the tiniest mm -hmm. town you've ever seen and i i would bring like i brought my college roommates up there um one year and they were freaking out the whole time they're like oh my <laughs> god we're gonna get murdered this is like this is like a horror film and blah 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 and i'm like we're much more likely to get murdered living in New York City than we are here. Like, there's nobody yeah. here. The only person here is 80-year-old Bill down the road, and he's basically blind, and his biggest joy in life is raising oxen for shows. So, like, Aww. we're not... <laughs> yeah. We don't need to be worried. I mean, I'm not that quite that rural, because I live a bit closer to town, and I'm in a village. Yeah, But... Like, like I say, even like out on the moors and everything, like where various family and friends live and I've house sat on my own in these big houses and yeah. I've never felt unsafe. No, it's like if there's no one there, if there's no one around, there's no one to murder you. I, I just find the, the the juxtaposition of like rural life and horror film rural life very interesting. Very different, yeah. Because in my experience, the purge is more likely. Oh yeah, for sure. Than the cabin in the woods. Yeah. Definitely. Well, you know, us backwoods hicks were all inbred murderers. Well, I mean, in this case, <laughs> we'll get there, y'all. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, family thought they were being watched. Classic, classic horror movie trope. In the weeks before the murder, Andreas Gruber told neighbors that he had found a Munich newspaper on the kitchen windowsill, but nobody in the house read that particular newspaper. And after asking around in case it had maybe been delivered by mistake, Andreas learned that nobody in the local area even subscribed to that paper. Uh, just days before the murders, the family noticed a single set of footprints in the snow leading from the woods to the farmyard, but no set of steps leaving the farm and going back to the woods. Nope. Don't like it. The footsteps led to the machine room where the lock was broken and there was more noises in the night around this time. And this time wasn't... This time, the family actually heard them, so... Before, it had just been the maid. Mm -hmm. oh. 
That's how I've understood it. It was just the maid who, you know, heard all these noises. But again, if it's someone from like an urban area moving to the country, I mean, the country is a lot quieter. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of different noises. Yes, yeah. Um, so it might have been that there were normal noises and just not used she to just them. wasn't used to them. Yeah. But this time, their family heard them as well. But when they went to look around the house and the outbuildings, they couldn't find anyone lurking. So despite these strange goings-on, the family didn't report the break-in to local authorities, even though the neighbours urged them to do that. And even though the neighbours were aware of what was happening at the farm, it soon became subject of local gossip, nobody was actually rushing to help the Gruber family. They were just like, eh, go, report it to the police. (laughs) Uh, No one really cared, and that's because they weren't very popular in the local area. Oh, boy. Uh, So, according to the book, Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered by Amber Hunt and Emily G. Thompson, Andreas Gruber was unpopular for a number of reasons. He was thought to be aggressive and greedy, and with the exception of close neighbors who had no choice, most people avoided him whenever possible. Victoria was Andreas and Cecilia's only child to survive childhood, and while we're not sure how many siblings she had, there were rumors of neglect, possibly even abuse, which led to the deaths of these other children. Uh, One neighbor, according to this book, later claimed that the young children would be left out in the cellar on cold nights and that their cries could be heard by those passing by. Yet nobody did anything. Yeah. And there was also, you know, that other thing that we mentioned at the top that made this case oh so scandalous and salacious And honestly, it's probably one of the things that contributes to the longevity of this case and its popularity in true crime circles. That's right. We've made it to the incest. Yeah. It was very public knowledge in the local area that Andreas was having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, Victoria. (sighs) And that this relationship was very, very consensual. This... It may it may have begun when she was a child, we don't know that, but as an adult, it was it is reported it was very consensual. Great. Yep. Just uh, glad I didn't have anything to eat. Yeah. So Victoria was married before the outbreak of World War One. And uh, the couple had a daughter, Cecilia, who was born nineteen thirteen, nineteen fourteen. But Victoria's husband, Carl Gabriel was killed in a shell attack in France in December 1914. But the year after her husband's death, Victoria and her father were found guilty of carrying out an incestuous relationship between 1907 and 1910, when Victoria would have been aged 22 to 25. Ew. Yep. Uh, Victoria was sentenced to one month in prison while her father was sentenced to a year but incarceration did not deter them, and they reportedly continued their relationship after Andreas was released from prison. This, like, this is public knowledge. It's happening in the family home. Her mother must have known about this. That's what I wanted to know. Whilst it was generally accepted that Carl was the father of Cazilia, uh, the parentage of Victoria's youngest child is more disputed. And whilst this does also smack of like slut-shaming... You know, not knowing who your kid's father is. It will become important to the story later on. Yeah. 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 So Joseph was two years old when the family were murdered, meaning he was born around 1919 to 1920, five or six years after Carl Gabriel was killed in the war. Now, shortly after the end of the war, Victoria began a relationship with Lorenz Schlittenbauer, the local mayor, following the death of Lorenz Schlittenbauer's wife in 1918. Officially, Schlittenbauer was the father of Joseph, and although he was born out of wedlock and his parents did not live together or 
continue a relationship, it was accepted that he was the child's father and everyone kind of went about their lives. But, of course, people in small communities have good memories, and soon locals began to question the true identity of Joseph's father, with some people believing that Andreas was both the child's grandfather and father. Ew. Yeah. Uh, But even despite the family's complicated history, there were still no obvious suspects when it came to the strange happenings at the farm, which leads us back again to March 1922. Although the family's maid, Crescens, had quit her job in autumn, it was about six months before their new maid, Maria, began working for them. Maria arrived at the farm on March 31st, 1922, and she was accompanied by her sister who stayed at the house for a few hours as her sister settled in, and then left by early evening. Maria's sister is suspected to be the last person to see the family alive other than the killer. Sometime after Maria's sister left the farm, the family were murdered. The following morning, two coffee sellers, brothers Hans and Eduard Chirovsky, called at the farmhouse, but when they received no answer, they walked around the farmyard to see if anyone was about before they moved along. Uh, according to hinterkaifeck.net, the only signs of life the brothers witnessed were the cattle and the family's dog. Three more days passed uh, when a man named Albert Hofner visited the farm on the morning of April 4th. He was a fitter at a nearby factory and was at the farm to fix the engine on what is described as a food chopper. <laughs> so I'm not really sure what that is, but it's obviously some kind of like farming machinery. Industrial farm equipment, yeah. And he had already arranged with, presumably, Andreas to fix it on that morning. Yeah. He knocked on the door, but when he didn't get an answer, couldn't find anyone, he just went to the outbuilding where the engine was and got to work. Which is fairly common. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know about you, but I know, like, like friends and family who live, like, out on the moors or on farms and stuff, if I had to drop anything off or pick things up, they just get left in the farmyard. Yeah. If then, and if no one's about, you, you drop it off, you take it, whatever. It's not uncommon to not see people if they're out working. Yeah. So he left the, the farm in the early afternoon without having seen or spoken to anyone. Uh, the family had missed the missed church that Sunday, so that absence was noted, as was Cassilia's absence from school. So on the afternoon of April 4th, Lorenz Schlittenbauer sent his son Johann and stepson Josef to the farm. I don't know if it's Josef or Joseph. I don't know. I can't remember what I said at the beginning. I've been saying Joseph. I'll say Yosef, and then one of us is right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, yeah, he sent his son, uh, Johan, and stepson Yosef to the farm to see if they could make contact with the family. So he's got two Josephs, Yosefs. So, yeah, so Johan is his son, yeah. who was about 16 at this point. Yeah, and his stepson. And his stepson, Yosef. Um, I think was eight or nine, and then his son, Yosef, yeah, two, yeah, who might not have been his son. Complicated. Not many names about. No, you just you got like four to pick from. One of them Cecilia. One of them's Joseph. <laughs> um, when the boys failed to make contact with the family, Lorenz Schlittenbauer organized a search party along with some neighbors, and they began searching the farm buildings that afternoon. The group discovered four of the six members of the household in one of the barns. Andreas, uh, Cassilia Sr., Victoria, and uh, Cassilia Jr. All four had suffered blunt force trauma to the head, most likely from a pickaxe or a similar implement, and the bodies had been neatly stacked on top of one another. That's the creepiest part. Yeah, I think they were covered in, um, like, straw. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the farmhouse, the bodies of Joseph and Maria were found in one of the bedrooms. Joseph was in his bassinet, and both had the same kind of blunt force trauma that the rest of the family had suffered. It was concluded that the family had been killed either on the night of March 31st or in the early hours of April 1st. Uh, but that brought about 
even more questions. Because even though nobody had seen or heard from the family since the 31st, their dog had been fed and walked. The papers had been taken in, although the uh, mail, the post had been left to pile up. And their cattle had also been tended to. Which means that whoever killed the occupants of the Hinterkaifeck farm also stayed on the farm until the bodies were discovered and then fled. That's weird. That's terrifying. Uh, according to an article on mental floss, authorities initially centred their search on homeless men or men who were travelling through the area, along with other men from the local area with bad reputations. Ooh. I think the actual quote was men of ill repute, which is not a phrase you hear very often. No. It's usually women of ill repute. Yeah, I like that table turn. Yeah. But it was soon discovered that there was a large stash of cash on the property and nothing of any value had been stolen. In fact, aside from the bedsheets that had been used to cover some of the bodies, the only things to have been disturbed in the house were the food that the murderer had eaten and fires had been lit in the hearth because despite it being April, it was still very cold. Mm. Um, so with this in mind, the authorities moved on to other suspects. Now, in a seemingly bizarre move, the authorities removed the heads of the six victims. So autopsies had been uh, conducted following the deaths by a local doctor, but the skulls were then sent to Munich for further analysis. But they had nothing more to reveal. Whilst in Munich, they were given to clairvoyance to see if they could provide, quote, metaphysical clues. Mm. Unsurprisingly, this was a bust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you look like your brain's about to explode. Just why? Yeah, so the bodies were buried in the cemetery of one of the neighboring villages, minus the heads. Which is, I just think, the worst part. Like, yeah. not only did you chop off the heads to give to clairvoyance, but you then never gave them back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, over the years, the skulls were lost. Which isn't as suspicious as it might seem at first, given that the skulls actually disappeared sometime during the Second World War. Ugh. So there was a lot of document and evidence destroying went on yeah. during the second world war as well as just casualty of war yes buildings are destroyed yeah um it reminds me of the lizzie borden or the borden murders because the medical examiner just decided to chop their heads off and even brought mm. the skulls to court like, uh, I know we did Lizzie Borden last year, but it's still for some reason the details of that don't stick in my head. Uh, I think the reason that they stick in my head is because uh, I read that whole book about it in like two nights because I couldn't sleep properly. <laughs> <laughs> but just like, why did anyone ever think that was a good idea? Just don't do that. It's, I mean, people from the past. Just had some very strange ideas. Just don't. We don't need to do that, y'all. It's not, not a thing that needs to happen. Uh, so, to this day, over a hundred suspects have been investigated in this case, with a German police academy reopening the cold case as recently as 2007. Uh, now, we're only going to look at a handful of them, because a hundred is a lot. Uh, but and also, I can't find records for all of them. Yeah, um, it's been a, it's been a minute since this happened. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we're gonna look at a few, and we're gonna start with the least likely of all of these suspects, and that is Andreas Gruber himself. The theory has been floated that rather than a home invasion, the Hinterkaifeck murders were actually a family annihilation murder suicide. This theory posits that Andreas Gruber systematically murdered his family and the maid before killing himself in the barn alongside his wife, daughter, and granddaughter. However, the problem with this theory is that Andreas had two blows to the head, just like the rest of the family. And it's 
pretty unlikely that he would have been able to deliver two blows to his own head before collapsing. Yeah. No. It just, it, if it was... One? Yeah, one, maybe. Where you collapse and the murder weapon is right there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But the murder weapon was not there. Yeah. So, seems not super likely. No. Uh, so, next, and, you know, second least likely culprit we're going to look at is Carl Gabriel. That's right. Victoria's dead husband has been investigated as a viable <laughs> suspect in this case. So, as we said before, Carl Gabriel died in December 1914 in France, but sadly, like many soldiers who died on Europe's battlefields in the 20th century, his body was never recovered, which has led some to believe that he survived the war and was behind the murders. Now, whilst this might sound like tin hat territory, according to the Unsolved Murders book that we mentioned before, this theory was one considered by the chief of uh, the Schrobenhausen police, uh, Ludwig Mixel. Mixel? 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 Pick one. I don't Mixel. Do you make a remix if you yeah. want? Mixel, 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 Mixel. Uh, Ludwig Mixel. A remixel. Oh, hell no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was theorized that Carl could have uh, could have killed Victoria and her family as revenge for her affair with her father. But Carl's death was later confirmed by the Office for War Losses and War Graves in 1923, and he was ruled out as a suspect. However, this theory gained traction once again following the Second World War. According to Wikipedia, because I couldn't find a more credible source in English, Towards the end of the war, prisoners of war in the Schrobenhausen region, just a few miles from Hinterkaifeck, were released early, or freed, by a German-speaking Soviet officer, who they said claimed to have murdered their family at Hinterkaifeck. Hmm. Now, some of these statements were later revised, which obviously questions their validity, but some people who had known Carl said he had talked about wanting to travel to Russia. So it was feasible that had he actually survived the First World War, he could have returned to Germany, killed his family, and then fled to what was at that point the Soviet Union. Yeah. Stranger things have happened. Yep. But still... Very far-fetched. Yeah. In 1951, a local woman made a deathbed confession that her two brothers had committed the murders. Crescentia Mayer claimed that her brothers Adolf and Anton Gump had committed the murders. Her brother Adolf had died in 1944, but Anton was still alive, and as a result of his sister's confession, he was remanded into custody while authorities investigated him. He was later released without charge, and the case was dropped completely in 1954 because there was no evidence to link him to the murders. That's interesting. And there's a couple of suspects that came about because of deathbed confessions, yeah. which I just find very strange. I think it's interesting that it's like the sister who's like, hey, mm. these two, these two did it. And maybe, and, well, and like, I think it's, we're going to talk about this at some point in the future when we cover D.B. Cooper, but I think it's a common thing in cases like this that have been unsolved for so long where people start mm -hmm. to think, oh, well, it could have been my uncle. And they have this theory for years and years, but because it's family, they don't yeah. talk about it until either the family member that they suspect dies or they're about to to die. Well, it's a thing that I've heard talked about a lot. Um, happened during the 70s when the Yorkshire Ripper was about. Oh, yeah, for sure. Nobody had any idea who it was and there was this high... There was just so much paranoia that everyone... It was like, well, is it my uncle? Is it my brother? Yeah. Is it my father? My husband? You know, my boyfriend? And they say... Like with D.B. Cooper, 
And a lot of these old unsolved cases, people have these theories that they're scared to voice. Yeah, because, well, what if they're right? And then this person's secret is uncovered and then now they're in danger. Yeah, or what if they're wrong? Yeah, that too. And And you're then putting yourself in danger because if if you think that someone close to you is capable of this kind of violence and you are wrong, now they they are capable of this kind of violence, but not that specific crime, you are then in a hell of a lot of danger. Yeah, exactly. You've put the spotlight on you and you're saying, hey, Uncle Bill, I think you're evil. What do you have to say yeah. about that? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, we haven't had many instances of this come up in our cases before, have we? Not one that I can think of. Yeah, so I do think we're going to, in some of the cases we have planned, we're going to come up against this again. But So, spoiler alert, at some point we're going to do DB. Yes, (laughs) we are. Not sure when exactly yet, but it's going to happen. Moving on from the deathbed confessions, uh, another interesting suspect was Paul Mueller, a German national who was the main suspect in the murder of an entire family in Massachusetts in 1897. Uh, He was also a suspect in the murders of two families in one night in Colorado in 1912 and the murder of another family in Kansas a few weeks later. These murders in the U.S. bear similarities to the Hinterkaifeck murders. The entire family was murdered using a farming implement. And author Bill James believes that Mueller was responsible for them and others before he returned to his native Germany. And the book that talks about that is called The Man from the Train. Yeah. I had no idea that this linked up to all these cases in America. Yeah. Um. So now I'm going to have to go away and read that book. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's crazy. Like, it's something like tens of of murders and like 60 victims or something are potentially all yeah. linked. So yeah. definitely worth so, a look. When when we've both read the book sometime next year. Yeah, we'll come back. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we'll come back to this yeah. one in a future episode. Uh, the final suspect that we're going to look at is one of the most sort of popular or favoured suspects, and that is the local mayor, Lorenz Schlittenbauer. So Schlittenbauer was in an off-again, on-again relationship with Victoria between 1919 and the murders in 1922, and may have been the father of Victoria's second child, Joseph. Uh, Schlittenbauer allegedly wanted to marry Victoria, but her father forbade the marriage. According to the family's previous maid, uh, Kresens Riga, Andreas told Victoria that she didn't need to marry again because he was always there to fulfill her needs. Nope. 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 Ew. Nope. 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 Hard pass. And, um... And yes, and she specified that she meant that this meant sexually. Great. Yeah. No. No, 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 no. You know that gif of like the octopus that just kind of rolls across the seabed and it just goes nope, 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 nope. Yeah. That. That. That's me right now. Yeah. So not only did uh, Schlittenbauer have motive for the murders, he also found the bodies in the barn. And after finding the bodies, he entered the house with a key to the front door, which nobody knew he had, (laughs) and then found the other two bodies. So amongst all the strange things Andreas had told neighbours had been going on at the farm in the months leading up to the murders, he told them that one of the keys to the front door had gone missing. Hmm. Sure, it's just a coincidence. Uh, Once people heard that Schlittenbauer had a key and that Andreas had told people that a key had gone missing just before the murders, the local mayor became the prime suspect, and in the court of public opinion, he was quickly found guilty. As is so often the case. Mm. Uh, Along with the key, locals also believed that uh, by finding the bodies, Schlittenbauer was also able to disturb and compromise the scene before any investigation could take place. I have thoughts about this, because why would he need to disturb the scene if he killed them? 
he could disturb the scene when when it when the crime happened yeah yeah when he actually murdered them yeah so i always find that being to be like a strange kind of like almost note like side note like oh well he found them so he could have disturbed the scene well if he did it he arranged the scene to start with yeah yeah and could have and it, like just, it would make more you know, sense compromised it. if it was like a sort of like very frenzied scene like it seemed like it it was a like heat of the moment kind of murder but this killer then spent an extended period of time in the house like had ample mm-hmm. opportunities to clean up the scene so yeah seems like a bit more of a yeah a strange leap yeah, it just it, it just seems strange to me. Shadow is barking. He looked at me and then just barked again. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. okay. Um, at least he looks cute and adorable. He is very cute. He's very fluffy. I can't imagine being him in this kind of heat. I feel very sorry for him. This week's episode soundtrack brought to you by The Neighbor's yes. Dog. <laughs> Do apologize. We'll try to edit out as much as possible. <laughs> um yeah. So Lorenz uh had an excuse as to why he had a key and why he searched the house unaccompanied. And that was that he was looking for his son, Joseph. Uh, the key could be explained away as him having it for potential emergencies involving his son. And after finding the body of his on-again, off-again lover alongside her parents and daughter, you know, it's pretty reasonable that he would then rush around the rest of the farm buildings to try and find his son. Mm. Uh, although there was no concrete evidence pointing towards Lorenz Schlittenbauer the cloud of suspicion hung over him for years. And that suspicion was only strengthened a few years later when a local school teacher approached Schlittenbauer when he was visiting the memorial next to the site of the farm. According to this teacher, Schlittenbauer told them that whoever had killed the family had tried to bury the bodies in the barn, but the ground was still too frozen for them to dig the graves by hand. Now, many have pointed to this as an example of Schlittenbauer having intimate knowledge of the crime scene, but also as a local man who owned a neighboring farm, Schlittenbauer could have easily made sort of an educated guess or assumption about the state of the ground when the murders took place. After almost 20 years of suspicion and accusation, Schlittenbauer brought a civil case for slander against a number of local people would publicly refer to him as the murderer of Hinterkaifeck. This was in 1941. I would have thought they'd all have more to worry about at that time. Yeah, a little bit, right? Um, And Schrittenbauer won this case, but he still remains one of, if not the favourite suspect, 99 years later. Um, In 1923, the farm was demolished, and during demolition, the murder weapon was finally recovered, and that was a mattock. Which, if you're like me, I don't know about Taylor, did you know what it no, is? I... So if, if you're like us and don't know, yeah. it is uh, kind of like a pickaxe, sometimes known as a grub axe. Yeah, it's kind of, it's it's kind of like commonly a, used on farms. It's kind of like a, like a flat pickaxe with like a pointy mm. end and a, a straight end, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a normal axe. And a pickaxe point. Yeah. When the autopsies were carried out, it was theorized that the murder weapon was a pickaxe or something similar. So that makes sense. They were right. Didn't help the investigation in any other way, (laughs) but they were right. Um, There is now a memorial to the family just off the road where the farmstead once stood, um, which you can go and visit. Atlas Obscura has directions, (laughs) should you wish. It's just like a little concrete shrine, uh-huh. just on the roadside. Um, and that is the story of the Hinterkaifeck murders. Yeah. Thoughts? I have no clue. Like, I I am super interested in the idea of Paul Mueller as a suspect. Mm. 
I think that's less likely than like someone who was intimately, you know, involved with the family or lived in the town or whatever. I think it may well have been the mayor, but also like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea with this one. What what I find interesting with the theory about the mayor is so he sent his son and stepson to go so search. So by yeah. the time of the murders, he was already in some kind of long term relationship or marriage with another with woman. Someone else, yeah. To have a stepson. Um. So, unless was the stepson from his first marriage, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Because you know, like, if you have a step-parent and then your parents get divorced, Mm -hmm. you tend to refer to them as, like, an ex-step-parent. I don't know. Never. So I don't know if, like, would, like, is that the same with children? Is it, like, your former stepson? Yeah. Is it still, like, what is the legal terminology around that? I have no idea. In terms of, like, guardianship and stuff. But also, didn't his wife, I thought his first wife died. So she died in 1918. She died around the end of the war. Okay. So his son was, let me just find this. His son, I think, was... He was like a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, so Johan was 16. And that was Schlettenbauer's son. And his stepson, Josef, was nine. So, Yeah. That's that's interesting because I was just assuming he had remarried rather than that being a stepson from his previous yeah. marriage. I just the thing that that I feel like throws some like doubt on him is that he also killed his son, his young baby yeah. son. In theory, however, if he, I guess if he had become convinced that Andreas was actually Joseph's father, that could lead mm. to more yeah. motive. So, yeah. And I mean, there are people who kill their own children as a way to get back at a spouse yes. or former spouse or partner. Yeah. So it is feasible, even if he did. Even if he didn't think that Andreas was the father, even if he thought he was genuinely the father, he could have still done it. But that usually, like, it's not like like a family and I, it's not like Chris Watts killed his family so he could have his mistress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he wasn't married, he wasn't intertwined. Yeah, they were kind of like, yeah. It wasn't like he wanted to get away from the family so he killed them so he could start another relationship. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just guess like there doesn't seem to be a lot of motive there. The one mm. thing that strikes me about this is that it happens the same day a new maid shows up. That was my thought when I was reading about it. I was like, there's nothing mentioned about like it's all about who would want to kill the family. But it's but the maid had just started. Yeah. Like we know nothing about her life, her background, like. Did someone mm-hmm. follow her from wherever she was and, you know, she was taking this new job to mm-hmm. escape from danger or something? Like, it just seems too yeah. convenient that, like, a new person comes into their lives and then they're all dead by morning. Yeah, That's my, like, I think that has something to do with it. There might well be more about the maid, just I couldn't find anything in English yeah. or anything that just translated easily couldn't find much about her now i know Um, we have at least one german listener we do and patron so hit us up if you know any more information about this because i'm really interested but yeah if if it was something to do with the maid it's very clearly very easily you follow them you kill them yeah everyone they you know in the house with them and then no one suspects you because... You have no connection. Yeah. A hundred years later and there's no 
sort of famous, well-known suspect with any link to the maid as opposed to the family. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a a perfect opportunity. Mm. And of course, there's also the other the other option that it was just a crime of opportunity. Yeah. I don't know what the opportunity was because there was no money taken or there was like still a lot of cash stashed around the farm. Like who kills someone and is then like, oh, I'm going to look after their cattle for a couple of days. (laughs) Well, yeah. The only thing I could imagine is maybe that like they killed the family and then took advantage of the house, the food, the, you know, the warmth, still winter, it's cold. Mm. And just didn't expect people to come looking for them, I guess. And possibly. And then skedaddled. But like, again, seems like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, because it's not, I mean, the really, really rural farms, that out theory I could completely yeah. understand. But this isn't that. This isn't yeah, like really like a, rural. It's There's like a village nearby. There's neighboring farms, you know. Their family were known for being sort of introverted and kept to themselves, but they still regularly saw and spoke to their neighbours. Yeah. That's how close they all were to each other, like, geographically. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird one. Mm. The ones where the killers stay behind in the house are just really creepy to me. Yeah. Don't like it. I find it weird. The one that creeps me out is where they're living in the house beforehand and nobody realises. Oh, I hate that. I can't that deal with that. That freaks me the fuck out. Like no, nope, 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 nope. There's so many like variables in in this case because like the previous maid thought that there was someone in the attic. Yeah, and the family in the days before the murder thought someone was hanging around somewhere. Mm-hmm. Which I suppose is why the maid has never been sort of anyone's looked at like the new maid and any connections to her. Yeah, in great detail because it was ongoing beforehand. But again, if you're not from the area and you move somewhere, there's always new noises. Whenever you move somewhere, there is new sounds that keep you awake for a night or two. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's in the attic. Yeah, exactly. One place I lived in, um, the flat next door to me had like sockets on the wall. And when those sockets were switched on, the just... The way the wall was built, it wasn't a particularly thick wall. It sounded like there was someone in the flat turning on a switch. Oh, nope. But after a while, I obviously just got used to it. Yeah. Things that go bump in the night, I think, are just noises. All buildings make noises. Oh, especially if you're out on a farm, like, and there's woods nearby. Mm-hmm. Like, you've got farm animals, wild animals, creaky doors and floors and... <laughs> you know wind and all that kind of stuff so all like it's amazing how loud the countryside is yeah so who who do you think is the most likely suspect like the mayor but also i think it's a toss-up for me between the mayor and someone totally random or someone Mm. maybe related to the maid in some capacity yeah see i really like the the husband theory Mm -hmm. but i think it's like it's like everything else where there's an unsolved case we start filling it in with bollocks yeah it's just not likely that he hit himself in the head twice with lethal force no i mean the um oh victoria's husband husband yeah who you know killed the family and then ran off to the soviet union and became a soviet prison guard and was stationed in the exact Just same nearby. area he had once lived. Yeah, it does seem kind of unlikely. Although, so. the Soviets are known, or were known for poaching foreign intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, if they were going to have someone, you know, they had a specific interest in that area, Yeah, they would want someone from that area. So, it was it is feasible that had that happened, that he would be then stationed in that area. Yeah. But, yeah, it's it's like when everyone resorts to, like, the spy theory when there's yeah. an unsolved case. Yeah. It's like, well, not not everyone can be a spy. No. Um. So, yeah, I don't really know either. 
but maybe you guys do. Or maybe you have some more information that, that we haven't found or, or you, you heard someone's, you know, Aunt, Aunt Ina's uh, deathbed confession or <laughs> whatever. Uh, we'd love to hear about it if, if you have that kind of intel. Um, so do let us yeah, know. Let us know, please, because... We don't know what I don't know what to think anymore. Uh, no, honestly. Um yeah, so send send us your comments and your theories on uh social media or you can email us uh at info at squaremileofmurder dot com or send us a message through our website. because um, yeah, we want to hear what you guys have to think. Uh and if you like the show, do be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Um, and we have merch. You've heard this before, <laughs> but uh, we have merch if you want merch, and you can get it at squaremileofmurder.store. If you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page. Tiers start from just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes one day early, a shout-out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime merch discount. And that's just for £1 a month. As the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive stationary merch that you can't buy. Yep. Uh, check all that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. And uh, we'll be back next week with another... Another tale to tell. Yes, another unsolved mystery, as it were. So we'll see you then. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.